Rabbi Heidi Cohen, please come up and introduce our speaker, and thank you all for coming out again. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you, everyone. It's such a pleasure and honor to have you all here at TBS. So if you haven't been here before, uh, please, really, go wander the halls. Because, yeah, was, as uh, Ari mentioned, we had a fire here, as you know, three and a half years ago. We've since rebuilt. We went down to the studs. And um, there are blessings that come out of the ashes. So we, uh, we're very blessed here. I want to thank CSP for being here, um, for all of you coming out here and, and joining us. It's exciting to see CSP do programming up here in central and northern Orange County. There are Jews up here, which is awesome. So I really do thank you so very much. And the New York trip, that's awesome. We did a New York trip, actually, with our congregation with our adults because they're like, you take the kids, why don't you take us? So I did. And I don't know, do you do, um, Ari, do you guys do Sammy's Romanian? Uh, it's on our list. Uh, our trip is so we actually rented out Russell's Daughter's Cafe for breakfast. You need to do Sammy's. You need to do Sammy's, trust me. Just don't take pictures, whatever you do. <laughs> what happens in Sammy's stays at Sammy's. Anyway, so with that... It is wonderful to uh, see you all as we prepare for the, uh, the wonderful high holidays that are before us. Um, Elul is this wonderful month of preparation, of thought, of reflection and study. And uh, today, to be able to hear from Rav Shmuley Yanklowitz. He has studied at the University of Texas as an undergraduate, Harvard University for a master's degree, and Yeshiva University for a second master's degree. He's, you know, he's a little bit of a slacker there, as you can see. Um, also, uh, Columbia University for a doctorate in moral development, and he's taught as an instructor of moral philosophy at Barnard College and at the University of California, Los Angeles. Go Bruins. Um, he was ordained as a rabbi at Yeshivat Chovevi uh, Torah and a Wexner Graduate Fellow as well. He, uh, as a global social justice activist and educator, Shmuley has volunteered, taught, and staffed missions in five continents, including Israel, Ghana, India, France, Thailand, El Salvador, Britain, Senegal, Germany, Switzerland, Ukraine, Argentina, South Africa, Haiti. I, I don't know where the man has not been. So, and doing so much wonderful. You've never been to Tustin. Finally, he can check that off his. That was at the top of your list, wasn't it? There you go. You're, and by the way, you can check off a few. You are right at the crosshairs of Tustin and Orange. You're good. And Santa Ana. There you are. So uh, film crew followed him uh, for over a year to produce a PBS documentary, The Calling. Has anybody seen that before? Okay, well, we got one taker back there. All right, so check that out. Um, maybe you can get that on Netflix. I don't know. And about the training of religious leadership, which aired nationwide in December of 2010. And um, the forward named Rav Shmuley one of the 50 most influential Jews. So in that same year, Yank, uh, he also was selected for the Ariane de Rothschild Fellowship in Cross-Cultural Leadership and Innovative Entrepreneurship at the University of Cambridge. So we are very, very honored to have um, Rav Shmuley here today to be able to share with us this Rosh Hashanah, cultivating moral courage, which I can tell you is definitely um, right now at the fingertips of all of us rabbis who are writing all of our sermons for these high holidays and will be on our tongues as we speak words, hopefully, of talking about moral courage and values and ethics that we find within our tradition, within our communities. So it is our honor to uh, invite forward Rav Shmuley Yanklowitz to come and to share with us and to teach us this afternoon. A uh, mother is always hacking. She's always complaining to her son that he has to go to synagogue. Every day, every week, you have to go to synagogue. Every, every high holidays, you have to go. It's very important. 
He says, Mom, give me, give me one good reason why I should go. She says, I'll give you two. Number one, you're 57 years old. Number two, you're the rabbi of the synagogue. Right? So I, I give you all the credit. It's hard for everyone to get out, you know, including the rabbis. But to come out before Rosh Hashanah, you're, this is like the heroic group of the community. Thank you, Rabbi Cohen, for that wonderful introduction. It's an honor to be in your beautiful temple and your holy space today. And um, thank you for joining, Rabbi Zimmerman. Always great to see you and learn from your meditation and, and, and activism work. And Rabbi Seidman, who's here, thank you for joining us. And Ari Katz, this is just a wonderful, wonderful program. And what an honor that I get to be a part of it. Really, it's, uh, I've, I've learned so much from what you're doing out here. Does everyone have a packet or someone next to you has a packet? OK. Good, good. OK, very good. <clears throat> so I want to start, actually, with a little bit of uh, of a kavanah, a little bit of chanting with me for about 30 seconds to a minute. Because the Baal Shem Tov said, you can't pray. You can't declare love for some divinity if you haven't first cultivated love for those around you. It makes no sense to study, come into a synagogue and study something abstract and put our minds out there before we look at one another. So every morning the Baal Shem Tov would recite this line, and it's, it's a very easy chant that you'll be able to follow along with me. And it's your source one on the packet, trans, transliterated there. Hareini mekabel alai et mitzvah taborei v'yahavta l'reyecha kamocha. I accept upon myself this mitzvah to love my fellow like myself. And here's how the melody goes. And if you don't learn it the first time, we'll chant it four or five times, so you'll have the chance to learn it. <clears throat> Hareini mekabel alai et mitzvat haborei ve'ahavta l'reyecha kamocha l'reyecha kamocha Everybody got that? Hareini mekabel alai et mitzvat haborei ve'ahavta l'reyecha kamocha l'reyecha kamocha Hareini mekabel alai et mitzvat haborei ve'ahavta l'reyecha kamocha l'reyecha kamocha One more time. Hareini mekabel alai et mitzvat haborei ve'ahavta l'reyecha kamocha l'reyecha kamocha so I want to start there because I think actually the beginning of this moral courage issue is the courage to love. I'm going to come back to that, but we have these barriers to having the courage to love. One of my favorite rabbis, Mother Teresa, who really is one of my favorite rabbis because she changed the position of being a nun. What did it mean to be a nun? You go inside and you study Tehillim all day, meaning you read the book of Psalms. She said, forget that. I'm in India. Calcutta, people are dying in the streets. I need, to go, I need to go help them. I need to serve them. And then she transformed that position. So one day in Calcutta, she was walking through, and as a typical day, she heard an elderly woman crying in a dumpster. And as she did, whenever she heard that, she climbed into the dumpster herself and said to the woman, who looked incredibly sick and ill on every level, said, why are you still here? Why, why, are, you, why are you holding on? You should let go. And the woman said, I can't let go. I have too much resentment for my sons who left me here. And Mother Teresa looked at her and said, take a deep breath and forgive your sons. And the woman took a deep breath and forgave her sons and then died. And I think of that all the time. 
because we have barriers to dying in our lives, but even more so we have these barriers to living. These barriers that every day prevent us from living. Because in fact, we don't die once, we die five times. The first time we die is when we stop living life to the fullest. The second time we die is when our body dies, the cessation of our heartbeat or the death of our brainstem. The third time we die is when our body is lowered into the earth and you st your family stands and looks at the casket going down. The fourth time we die is the last time our name is uttered in this world. And the fifth time we die is the last time any of our influence has any influence upon anything, as if our entire existence has dissipated. And our natural inclination to the fear of these deaths is to root ourselves in permanence. More stuff, if I get more stuff or my name on stuff, it's like I'll always be here, right? But the spiritual response of rooting ourselves within the eternal. So we have these barriers to dying, but even more so we have these barriers to living. And so moral courage is needed in our personal lives because either we're struggling with sickness or we love somebody struggling with sickness. Or maybe we're struggling financially. Or maybe we're struggling in some other relationship that we have that's really important to us. Or maybe we're struggling in our work or just, you know, in our psychologically, spiritually we're struggling. And we need moral courage to address the Jewish community affairs. Because indeed it is hard to be a Jew with rising anti-Semitism, all the complexities around Israel and, what's, and those dynamics. And indeed we need courage to be American today the brokenness of society, the brokenness of discourse, the brokenness of our capacity to actually see one another and cultivate empathy. So this moral courage, I hope today can be a meditation that each of us can take away the bit that we need to cultivate this moral courage on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Because I believe if we just show up on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, if we just show up, but we aren't transformed by it, we don't get chizuk, we don't get strength to grow to the next level. And it's like we've done nothing. I don't think there's any points for just showing up. It's hard work. It's hard work. And so this is kind of our, our, our pregame, if you will, to get excited to go and do the work we can do. So I want to start with Rav Cook, source two on the first page. Rav Cook was the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of pre-state Israel. Just so you have a sense that I was a fan of Rav Cook, we named our, our son uh, Mayor Lev Cook. Uh, and we named him Mayor Lev Cook, so his initials would be MLK. Um, so it's not often that a, a rabbi names a, a child after a Southern Baptist minister, but we, we like Rev Cook and we, and we like MLK. So here's what, here's what he says over here. We need to make a careful distinction between investigating the emotion of pride, arrogance. We need to distinguish between the regesh hapasul, the base emotion that distances a person from consciousness and consciousness of one's maker and the delicate feeling that expands a person's consciousness and reminds one of one's full and splendid spiritual existence. Often a person's heart will feel full of strength. At first glance, this feeling will seem similar to a feeling of arrogance. But after clarifying the matter, the reality is that one's heart is filled with courage from the divine light that shines in one's soul. What one sees is the greatness of God. If this person subdues themselves and distances himself from this pride, not only will they not do themselves any good, they will also weaken all of their spiritual powers. The resulting sadness leans to a gloomy resignation. They may think that this state of depression is closest with God, whereas in truth, they've actually distanced themselves and moved backwards. Now that's a little bit heavy, but what Rob Cook is saying here is that we have these moments of clarity, these moments of inspiration, and we can't let them die. The courage to keep that voice alive. And when it, when it emerges in us, you should have courage. We sometimes want to silence it. This is arrogance. But he's actually saying this is a divine gift. This courage that's found with us in this moment. To sit with somebody in hospice while they're dying. To go out to a protest against hate. To go and open our hearts to someone who has hurt us in the past. To potentially allow for some healing. These moments that require deep emotional intelligence and spiritual expansiveness require this type of courage. But the first step is to acknowledge our freedom, that we are free to actually do teshuva. We are free to change. Sadly, the three, the, the three greatest cases against free will were made by Jews for determinism. 
Karl Marx said we're determined by our socioeconomic status. Freud said we're determined by our early childhood experiences. Spinoza said we're determined by our inner disposition, by our genes, we call it. Right? There's no doubt they're all partially right. Marx is right, our socioeconomic status is very predictive. And Freud is correct, the early childhood experiences are a big deal. My wife and I are foster parents. We see the influence of those early stages on children. And Spinoza was definitely right. We know in the 21st century that our inner disposition or our, our genes ultimately have a huge impact on who we are. And yet the Torah comes and says, regardless of all those factors, we have a deep sense of freedom. And this ultimately might be what Selim Elohim really means. Being created in the image of God, some commentators suggest, means that the ultimate eternal freedom is a dimension within each of us. What makes us godly is our capacity for teshuva, our capacity for change, our capacity to see the world differently, to, as we get older, become more creative and more open-minded as opposed to more resentful and more closed in our views. Right? That through aging, right, we can be saging. Through our aging, we can actually become wiser as opposed to, to more, more disillusioned. And so Rav Cook here is a person who put this this test to life. Because he had big detractors in his life. He would walk every day to work in Jerusalem, and there was someone who hated him for his modernity, for his modern views. And this man, every day he saw him, would pour garbage on his head. Garbage on his head, even liquids. However, one day that man, the detractor, became very sick. And he found out that for the illness he had, there was only one medical expert in the world who could address it, and he was in Britain. And the only person in Israel, pre-state Israel, who knew this medical expert was in fact Rav Cook, the one he'd been pouring garbage on his head for all those years. So the detractor went to the tzaddik of Yerushalayim, a very special man, and said, please, can you go to Rav Cook? I can't go to him. Can you go to him? And he went to him and he said, do you know this gentleman? Rav Cook said, I, I surely know who he is. He said, he's very sick. Would you write a note to the doctor to see him? And immediately Rav Cook wrote a note to help him. And then Rav Kook called him back and he said, he's going to need money for his journey. Take this money. So Rav Kook, while anybody else would have become resentful and hateful and spiteful towards this detractor, it didn't even faze him. He was able to see the humanity in someone even though their disagreements were so deep. So this moral courage, the challenge is that we can be inspired by others, yet we can have no real role models. Why? Because when David went to war with Goliath, they tried to dress him up in his father-in-law's clothes. King Saul, his armor of a king. And little David, shepherd, started walking in the king's armor to prepare for war with Goliath. And he said, this isn't me. And he took off the king's armor and he put on his humble shepherd's gear. And then he went to war with Goliath. Each of us in our battles in life, in fact, we have to wear our own clothes. We have to have our own authenticity and our own moral courage. And that's what makes it so scary, is to truly be ourselves and walk our own path in this. Because each of us has a unique role in bringing about redemption in the world. Rebbe Nachman of Breslov taught, the day you were born was the day that God decided the world could not exist without you. The world can't exist without you. You play a crucial role in the redemption of the world, in the sustenance of the world. How many of you knew Rabbi Schulweis here in Southern California? So he had a nice midrash that he, he, he taught once where he said, the angels were very jealous when God created humans and said they were going to put the Tzalem Elohim inside the humans. The inner godliness, the spark inside the human being. The angels said, what? They're going to get it? We need to hide that Tzalem Elohim. We need to hide that godliness so the humans can't find it, because why should they get it? So the first angel said, let's hide it on the highest mountain. They'll never be able to climb to the highest mountain. Then the next angel said, no, no, hide that at the bottom of the seas. The humans will never figure out technology, or it'll take a long time until they figure out the technology to get to the bottom of the sea. But then the smartest angel came, and the angel said, no, no, hide the image of God in the depths of the human being, because they'll never look there. And how wise was that angel? That we would never, in a Levinas or, or Martin Buber fashion, truly come to see another person. 
We will see their, their race. We will see their gender. We'll see if they're attractive. We'll see if they're familiar, if they're young or if they're old. We'll see if we love them or not. But will we actually see the godliness in this face and sustain that thought for more than half a second? Because in fact, tikkun olam, repairing the world, really comes from tikkun he'lem, repairing the hiddenness. Repairing the world is about repairing the hidden dimensions, the dimensions that can't even be seen. And in fact, those who try to repair the surface level of their lives or of the community of the society often do much more harm than good. If they don't have the patience to see beyond the skin of the human being, beyond the building of the community, the physical edifice, right? If they can't look deeper, then it might create more harm. But tikkun halem, the repairing of the hiddenness, the repairing of the hidden people. I'll tell you about a hidden person I just met recently. Her name is Maria, and she works in the back of a restaurant. And she gets up in the morning at four and gets on a bus before anyone can see her because it's still dark. And she gets on a bus and she arrives at work and nobody's even there yet. And she cleans the dishes in the back room all day and all night. Then when it's dark late at night, she gets back on a bus and nobody sees her and she goes home. She's an invisible person in society. And our job as Jews is to make invisible people seen, to make the unheard heard, that whoever is crying, we bring their cry up to the surface, that whoever is not seen, we make them seen. And in fact, the Alter Rebbe tells a story of how he was learning with his grandson. He was learning Talmud with his grandson. And he heard a baby crying in the room next door. And the Alter Rebbe went and soothed the child. And then he came back and scolded his grandson. And he said, if the cry of another does not get you to pause your study, then your Torah learning is null and void. It's worthless. If our engagement in what we're doing does not get us to pause when we hear another, then what have we really done? What have we really done? You know, I recently, uh, <laughs> I recently uh, uh, broke some bones in my foot a few months ago, running. And I was laying on the side of the road in Arizona in 115 degree heat, waving my arm for about an hour. And nobody would stop. Nobody stopped. They didn't know what's that guy, what's the Meshuggah doing on the side of the road? And all of a sudden, a woman rides by on her bike. I said, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Like, God sent this woman to me. And, and uh, uh, maybe she has a phone. She can call my wife to take me home. I, I stopped. I said, please, please, do you have a phone? Can you call my wife? I need to go to the hospital. I had to have two surgeries, ultimately. And uh, she says, oh, no, no, I'm so sorry. I'm late for church. <laughs> I laid there. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> right? And it made me pause. I said, oh, my goodness, how many times is that my response? I'm late for shul. No, no, too busy, too busy. I, I, I'm on my way to work. I can't see you, right? That, in fact, today we are more aware than ever of suffering in the world, and yet we are more and more able to construct a life where we don't see it, where we don't hear it, where it's hidden away. So Rav Cook continues in the second passage. When it becomes difficult for a person to emerge from this heaviness, slowly they must rise up at once and mobilize the mida. I love this. Gaiva de Kedusha. The holy arrogance, sounds like an oxymoron, the holy arrogance. They must look at themselves very favorably, but I and Tova may ode, and find the good aspects of their shortcomings and weaknesses. For as one sets one's mind to seek out the good, immediately all of their weaknesses transform into strengths. It is possible for a person to find within themselves much good and to be very happy with their goodness. Day by day, such a person will increase their positive activities with a pure heart full and full of compassionate hope. You know, it's been said before that the work of the previous generation was to believe in God. And the work of our generation is once again to believe that God believes in us. To believe in our own goodness, our own potential for what we can achieve. And Rav Kook is saying we need gaiva to kedusha. We need a holy arrogance to see that we matter. To see that, that we have a role. To see that when we're inspired, we can do something. Right? Because at the end of the day, inspiration is fleeting so fast. Right? You go to a movie, it's like, wow, that changed my life. Next day, everything's the same. You go to a lecture that really speaks to you, but we don't commit to going forward. Right? And it just fades away. In fact, we know that only a number of years after a near-death experience, where somebody says, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm living differently now. I'm living every day with gratitude. I'm going to change my priorities. I realize how short life is that only a few years later, later, empirically, 
Nothing has changed about how that person lives. That we actually can have these moments of deep inspiration, but we haven't cultivated the tools to carry that forward, to sustain that, to, to sustain that, that light. You know, one of the ways I talk about faith is that uh, I was in Ghana, some 15 years ago I was in Ghana, and it was late at night and we were on a bus and there was no road. We were going eight hours east in Ghana from Accra. And late at night it was raining and there was no road, as I mentioned. And, uh, and every half hour there would be a bolt of lightning. And we'd look outside this little bus and we'd see that we were on something like a road. And in that moment, everything was clear and elucidated. Then it would go dark again. And in fact, faith is about living in darkness, but holding on to the clarity of the moment where you saw light. Right? There's this, this commitment to inspiration of living with moral courage says, I don't feel like it right now. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Right? I don't want to be critiqued. I don't want to exert that much energy. I've got a million reasons why I shouldn't have courage right now. Act on my courage. And that we remember that moment of light. As C.S. Lewis talked about, he says, faith is about believing in yourself in your moment of greatest clarity. So the way I like to tell that to college students is uh, your alarm goes off at 6 in the morning. And at that moment, you're about to hit the schnooze button. The schnooze. I think I just made it a Jewish word. You're going to hit the snooze button. You're about to hit the schnooze, and you say, I have faith in myself at my moment of clarity last night when I said six is the right time, right? So it's a different way of thinking of faith and belief in ourselves. But this model of leadership, this model of moral courage is about leading from the inside out. It starts with our inner world and it goes to our outer world. Because we can only address the messiness of the external world to the extent that we've addressed the messiness of our inner world. And in fact, many people have to shut off the complexity of the outer world because they haven't observed the complexity of the inner life, right? And so, I'll give one example. One time a woman came to Gandhi and said, Gandhi, or whatever you say to Gandhi when you address him, Gandhi, my, tell my son to stop eating sugar. Eat sugar all day. And Gandhi looks at the boy and looks at the mom and says, come back in three weeks. So she comes back in three weeks. Says, Gandhi, tell my son to stop eating sugar. Gandhi scratches his head. He said, three more weeks. Mom comes again. says, please, tell my son to stop eating sugar. And he looks at the boy and says, don't eat sugar. And the mother says, that's amazing. He's going to listen to you. But what took so long? He said, all those weeks, I was still eating sugar. Right? He couldn't tell this boy to not eat sugar if he was still doing it. This notion of we wish to create a change in the world, we know it starts with ourselves. We know that that's the greatest part. You know, I shared with the group this morning that one of the most common questions I get is, how do I get my kids to love Judaism? Or how do I get my grandkids to love Judaism? And for me, the answer is so obvious. You have to love it. You can't put them in some million-dollar program. If you don't live it, if you don't love it, there's no way there's a chance they're going to do it. The best recipe is let them see you praying fervently or let them see you giving tzedakah or volunteering or let them see you studying or attending and see that you're not just checking a box, that you love it, right? It goes from the inside out, this stuff that, that we need to see. So the third source, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, which we're not going to read inside, but he was a great Musar teacher, a great teacher of character development. And he talks about how each of us is capable of much more than we can imagine. And it deals with how an arm can even get stretched further. We've all heard the examples of how like a mother sees their child under a train or something, like lifts up the train, right? Something like this. I've seen my wife do it with our babies. Like, just, I had no idea you were capable of that, right? That in these moments that call for courage, we can do much more. Because at the end of the day, if someone asked me, what is the most important Jewish teaching? I would say, it's that everything matters. Everything matters. Maimonides says in Hilchot Teshuvah, which we study in this period approaching Rosh Hashanah, that we should view the world as if there's a scale. And our very next action will tilt the scale, either towards the redemption of the world or the destruction of the world. Now, how many of us view our, our actions in such a way that my next step is going to destroy or save the world? Probably not many of us. But what a great thought experiment. My next choice, whether to smile or frown, whether to complain or to praise, whether to hold the door or barge my way through, whether to give that $5 or just buy a Twinkie, right? Whatever this choice I'm about to make is, right? This is the choice that matters. 
Now, one could go, one could go insane with such an idea. But in fact, I know very few people who do. I know more who actually uh, want a little bit more of a break. What if somebody came to you tomorrow and they said, you know what, I'm going to give you $86,400 every day for the rest of your life. Oh, whoa, where do I sign up? I'm quitting the rabbi job, right? That sounds amazing. Here's the only rule. The only rule is that you have to spend all the money every day. Amazing, I'm in, I'll figure out a way. In fact, we've been given that gift, 86,400 seconds every day of our life. Don't carry over, can't save them in a bank. It's all we got are these holy moments to make things matter. Will we embrace that gift ultimately? You know, Elie Wiesel would tell the story about how Freud and Herzl, um, Freud, Freud and Herzl lived in the same district in Vienna. But how amazing was it that they never met each other? Because what would have happened if they met each other? Herzl would have said, Im I have a dream of something that's going to happen. And Freud would have said, a dream? Lay down on this couch. <laughs> I'll cure you of this dream. Right? And in fact, that's what the world is doing. The world is trying to cure us of our dreams. It's telling us, ah, everything is going sour anyways. You don't matter. It doesn't matter if you show up or not. It doesn't matter what you do with your life. Just enjoy yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Check the box. Check the box. You're not the real leader who's going to make things happen. You are not the one that matters, ultimately. But you know what? There's a great debate in the Midrash about what's the most important verse in the whole Torah. And the first three you can predict. If I asked you right now, you'd say the ones I was, I'm about to say. The first one we've already mentioned, but Selim Elohim, that every human being is created in the image of God. A second is Shema Yisrael, right? Um, a third is V'yahavta L'Reacha Kamocha. So there you have it. There, one verse is there is a God. A second verse is that there's a godliness within every human being. The third is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And the fourth one is the least predictable. Ben Pazi says, bring the Korban Tamid every day. Bring the daily offering. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not so excited about returning to animal sacrifices. That may be your goal. No offense if that's your goal. Not really my, 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 main, my main religious goal. But what is Ben Pazi teaching? He says, all those abstract ethics, they don't matter if you don't concretize them into daily life. Daily service. What's your daily service? How come we invested in our retirement funds and we invested in our career so deeply, but how much did we invest in our spiritual bank account? How much did we build into our daily practice? Giving. Right, okay, I gotta go to the cleaners, I gotta do my laundry, I gotta do the dishes, I gotta do an errand here or there. Build in our study, our going to, going to help someone who needs help, right? How did we build it into our schedule? That the abstract ethics can only matter if it's, if it's fully built into our lives. And so the challenge is to see those opportunities. If you look at source four, with Moshe, this is a very famous text which you recall. It says in Exodus, it happened in those days that Moses grew up and went out to his brethren and observed their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. He turned this way and that and saw that there was no man. So he struck down the Egyptian man and hid him in the sand. So before Moshe, before Moshe strikes down the, 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 the um, Egyptian, why does he look both ways? Okay, I think I heard two different things. One that I heard was, see if somebody else is going to step up. If nobody else is going to lead, then he will. But I think the other one I may have heard was, see if he's going to get in trouble. Is he going to get caught? Right now, a third possibility, actually, is that what happens in systems of oppression is a process of dehumanization. He sees no man. What do you mean? There's just Israelite slaves all over the place. He can't see them. He looks around, he sees no man. He sees Israel's slaves, but they're not a man. In fact, the, 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 the earliest code of law before the Torah is the Code of Hammurabi. And what's the punishment if you kill a slave? It's a monetary crime. The Torah comes, and it, it was way too early to abolish slavery. I mean, we only did it in this country 150 years ago, right? But the Torah said, you kill a slave, it's a capital crime. What a radical revolution that was. 
capital crime, this is a slave, they're not worth as much as, you know, women in this country weren't worth as much as, as men, you know, not so long ago. I mean, 3,300 years ago, that this is a human being. So Moshe is in a process of dehumanization, he can't even see these people around him. But this other idea, who else is stepping up? This moment of moral courage, of saying, who is here in this moment that I see, and am I prepared to do my role in this particular moment? So Brene Brown says here, and if you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Do Everything, essentially. She writes, but as I look back on my life and what daring greatly has meant to me, I can honestly say that nothing is as, as uncomfortable, dangerous, and hurtful as believing that I'm standing on the outside of my life looking in and wondering what have been like if I'd had the courage to show up and let myself be seen. For me, that's a, that is a terrifying moment. That moment of looking back on our life and seeing the opportunities we had in, we had in front of us to heal rather than destroy, to step up rather than step back, to go one step further with that five minutes when we're exhausted rather than one step back. She challenges us. And for me, the gates of heaven question that I believe I'll be asked at the gates of heaven is, did you give more or take more from the world? Did you give more or did you take more? I'm absolutely convinced from my own life I've taken far more than I've given. I mean, if you look, the first three years of life, I spend a lot of my time now with babies. The first three years of life, you're just people changing your diapers and carrying you around and putting food on your plate. Your first 18, maybe 22 years of life, you sit in the classroom and people just teach you, right? Just to compensate for those first 22 years of life, what kind of debt we have right, to family, to community, to society. I mean, it's enormous to actually catch up, to live in America in the 21st century, and all the more so if someone's middle class or upper middle class, the amount we have to give back, right? But Brene Brown says, that's this first starting place. Do we have the courage to be seen, to actually show up? C.S. Lewis continues, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So that ability, we were taught that vulnerability, that courage was about not showing vulnerability, showing yourself as strong, right? You're strong, you're unbreakable. And the argument that actually this vulnerability bringing our brokenness intertwined with our wholeness is actually a crucial part of this. This, this going into the, the month of Teshuvah, that actually it is, it is bringing our imperfections right, with clarity to the table that enables that courage. You know, the Kutzker Rebbe said, Kutzker Rebbe says, why does the Shema say, al levavcha? You should put these words on your heart. This doesn't make any sense. Put the words on your heart. Put them in your heart. Bilvavcha. Put the, put the words of truth in your heart, not on your heart. He says, that's the point. He says, most of the time our heart is closed. So you line the words around the heart. But then in these rare moments, if you have the faith to continue to put those words on your heart, keep putting them there, keep putting them there. These moments, your heart will crack open. And at that moment, all those words will sink in and be absorbed. So don't think, this, this isn't working. This isn't working. My intellectual pursuit, my spiritual pursuit is not working. Right? Keep putting those words on, and eventually it'll sink in. Because if, if it's not laying there, when a heart cracks open, there's, there's virtually nothing to, there's nothing to sink in. You know, recently I received a donation. And it was a strange donation because it said it was for $5. So, geez, if you're a Jew and you don't want to give, you give 18. You're five. You must really not want to give, right? I go down, it says, in honor of my mother. Your mother? You must have really not loved your mother. Even 18 for your mother. I go down a line further. Address. Homeless. And I stared at it for... 10, 15 minutes, I couldn't believe it. How much of a sacrifice did this man make to take $5?
his lunch for the day, his dinner, to honor his mother, to further Jewish learning. And I ask myself, do I make any kind of sacrifice even close to that? I think of Roe Klein, an 18-year-old in Israel who when they threw a grenade at his unit of 20, of 20 men and women, immediately he threw his body upon the grenade and said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. And then he blew up. Do I have the moral clarity? Do I have the moral clarity that when I see the opportunity to save life, that I jump upon it? Right? Maybe not for death, but for life? You know, I was, re I was recently watching a Garth Brooks uh, YouTube. Any Garth Brooks fans here? No, I know we're in California, not Texas. If I was in Texas right now, you know, be a lot of excitement. You know, but so Garth Brooks had this YouTube, and there's a woman standing in the front row of this Garth Brooks concert. And the sign says, Chemo this morning, Garth tonight. And Garth saw the sign, Chemo this morning, Garth tonight. And he stopped his concert, and he went down, and he hugged this woman. Now, if you're a professional musician, you don't pause your show. You don't pause the show. Maybe after the song, you do something or after the concert. But he paused the show. And this was a touching story for me, not only because my mother's been battling cancer, but also because it raised the question for me. What would it take to pause my show? What would I have to see a sign screaming out in front of my eyes to say, I see you. I embrace you. I'm going to pause from the routine of my life to embrace you. You know, there was a young girl who, uh, who recently walked into a jewelry shop in Jerusalem. And um, she walked in, maybe eight years old, said, I'd like to buy a very, very nice piece of jewelry. The owner of the store said, okay, very nice. An, uh, an elderly gentleman, who, who are you buying this for? said, I want to buy it for my sister, my older sister. You see, I'm an orphan. My parents died when I was very young. And my older sister has raised me. And I've always wanted to do something nice for her. So in fact, I'd like that, that necklace right there, pointing to the most expensive necklace in the shop. And the owner looked at it and said, wow, thousands of dollars. That's the, nicest, that's the nicest necklace we have here. And the little girl said, don't worry. I'm totally prepared to pay for it. She pulls out of her pocket eight shekel and 70 agarot. It's like roughly $2. And the elderly gentleman looks at the girl, looks at the eight shekel, and looks at the, at the thousands of dollars in the necklace and says, that's exactly the cost of this necklace, and takes the shekel and slides the necklace across to the girl. She walks out with a smile, and he has a smile, the next day, the older sister runs in. I'm so sorry. Here's your necklace back. My sister must have robbed you or deceived you or something. I'm so sorry this happened. And the gentleman said, no, no, no. Your sister paid it in full. She paid eight shekel, 70 agarot, and one broken heart. You see, since my wife passed away a few years ago, no one who walks into this store has opened my heart. They just pass the money, take the jewelry, and go. And your sister gave that gift to me. She, she paid in full. And the question is, do we have the capacity for the person walking into our store to, to open our heart? Lest we think that I'm only talking about some alpha male model of leadership, like, like guerrilla warfare. Have, have you ever watched monkeys go to war? You ever watched monkeys fight? Yeah? Okay, so the way, the way, the way apes go to war is that the, that the silverback gorilla stands in the middle and puts his back up straight and all the other apes circle, circle around him, and then, and then they go to fight, right? So there's this old model of leadership, right, that the oldest male, everyone circle around and then go to war. But here's a feminist critique coming from a reform rabbi here in uh, uh, a woman's commentary. Uh, source six. She says, at the Sea of Reeds, according to Midrashic tradition, not shown, stood at a crossroads, whether to have faith and plunge into the water or be gripped by fear and remain on the shore. What was that moment like? If we were on the shore of the sea that fateful day, how would we have acted? Confidently, timidly? Would we have entered the water gingerly or with fury, flailing or swimming? How do we approach the sea crossings in our own lives? Are we coerced by an army from behind or pulled ahead by the unknown?
So just a little background here. As you recall, Nachshon ben Aminadav was the one that when the Israelites arrived at the sea and they saw they had nowhere to go. And now the Egyptians were chasing them from behind. What will we do? And they said, forget it, let's kill ourselves. Or they said, pray to God. Or they said, let's go turn ourselves back in. We'll be slaves again. Right? There's nothing else we can do. Or some said, let's go fight. Those were all the options. And then not shown. Says, Mi Madonai, Mi And the water hits his mouth as he's walking into the water. And the water splits. And he walks through. Amazing, right? That's not shown. I love him, right? The story of faith and courage. Walk into the sea even if you're all alone. She's going to shatter that image for us. Some think not shown as fearless, determined to be the first in the water. In Midrash to Hillam, not shown repeatedly pelts his brothers with stones to assure his place of primacy. The daredevil confidence of the not shown contrasts sharply with another vision of this moment. Huddled together, a terrified crowd looks behind at the Egyptians and, for and forward toward the water. As they yell, I don't want to go into the sea. Not shown jumps in fear. Losing his footing, he falls into the waves. Overcome with terror, he, he cites Psalms. Save me, O God, for the waters have reached my neck. Here not shown a fearful, drowning man cries for God's help. The Midrash alternatively envisions not shown as hapless victim, brash show-off, or eager leader. Right? I love this source, that we have this not shown who jumped into the seas. Though he's, the, he's the hero, and the water splits. And then this feminist critique is actually, he was fighting to get to the front. He was throwing stones at everyone so he could get there. Or better yet, he fell into the water. He wasn't marching in. He fell into the water. Right? So we know that leadership, that this type of moral courage is not about running to the front to necessarily you know, bang our chest. That actually moral courage oftentimes comes in very quiet moments where nobody can see, no one can hear, right? But ourselves, the integrity. In fact, I think one of the most important things of a religious consciousness is that we, believed, we believe that we're watched even when no one is in the room. We believe that we're seen when no one can see us. We believe that it matters, right? That in fact, we're even better when we're behind closed doors rather than in public. Right? Because we, we're aware of that spiritual consciousness of, of the interconnectedness of the cosmos, of the presence of divinity. So Abraham Joshua Heschel, preparing us for the holidays, Source 7 says, we are all pharaohs or slave of pharaohs. It is sad to be a slave of a pharaoh, but it's horrible to be a pharaoh. Daily we should take account and ask, what have I done today to alleviate the anguish, to mitigate the evil, to prevent humiliation? Let there be a grain of profit in every person. To see, where am I a victim? But where am I actually the paro in the world? To actually have the courage to see, not just that we point out to the oppressions and injustices and evils, the evil is jihad, or the evil is this politician or that, right? But to say, where am I on the side of Pharaoh? How, many, how few people can ask that question? Where am I supporting evil, right? We know today in the political spectrum that we see very dangerous characters on the far left and the far right. In fact, some people on the left don't have the integrity to acknowledge some of the dangers on the far left, and some people on the right don't have the integrity to acknowledge the dangers on the far right. So everything's over there, right? But in fact, our responsibility is to clean up our own camp. Heschel continues, the beginning of prayer is praise. The power of worship is song. To worship is to join the cosmos in praising God. Prayer is meaningless unless it is subversive, unless it seeks to overthrow and to ruin the pyramids of callousness, hatred, opportunism, falsehoods. The liturgical movement must become a revolutionary movement, seeking to overthrow the forces that continue to destroy the promise, the hope, the vision. This subversiveness of prayer, again, going back, if we just show up on the high holidays, we've done nothing. The prayer has to rock us. It has to actually break the callousness of our heart. It has to actually bring us to tears in a sense that we are aware of our potential, of our imperfection, of the brokenness of the world, of the things that we've done, of how we've hurt people and how we've been hurt. It has to bring us to tears as we hit our chest for our wrongs, but also as we hug ourselves to show love and care to ourselves at the same time. He says it's subversive because the prayer has no meaning if it's just reading the words, really. You know, one of the great passages in, in Masechet Yoma in the Talmud is, talks about 
how the prophets stopped reciting in the Amidah, Ata Gibor. God, you are great. Because they looked around at a world that was full of destitution and brokenness. Said, we don't see the greatness of God in the world. And the Talmud says the prophets were right. God hates lies. Change the passage if you must. You can't say something you know to be untrue. The integrity of our prayers, the integrity of our high holiday experience is to say, I'm here to look at truth, inner truth and outer truth, the courage to actually see the world. I want to look at two last sources and then I really want to get to the, to the Q&A to hear some questions and thoughts from, from all of you in our, in our remaining time. Parker Palmer, source nine, says, in response to the question, how can we move beyond the fear that destroys connectedness? I'm saying by reclaiming the connectedness that takes away fear. How important in our time to maintain the encounter, the encounter with the child or the estranged family member that we've lost touch with, to become in touch once again with our childhood self, with that earlier part of us that we've lost, that pintalayid, that part of us that was a dreamer, that we no longer hear them with inside of us. There's a name for the endurance we must practice until a larger love arrives. It is called suffering. We will not be able to teach in the power of paradox until we are willing to suffer the tension of opposites, until we understand that such suffering is neither to be avoided nor merely to be survived but must be actively embraced for the way it expands our own hearts. The courage to learn, the courage to hold on to paradox, the courage to suffer in uncertainty, because that suffering pushes us to immediately jump into certainty. I know exactly what's happening in the world. I know exactly what's happening inside of me. I know exactly what's happening in our relationship. But in fact, to hold on to that uncertainty of not exactly knowing what's going on, in fact, doubt may be more important than faith. And in fact, Heschel said that questions are more holy than answers. Right? To sit in that period of, of time, that sp holy space of not being sure where we go from here. Rabbi Adin Steinzolt says, if you think you are found, you are lost. Right? Only when we see we don't know where we're going next are we truly open. William Blake concludes us, to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. This courage to be present, to really be present, to be open to the moment, to be open to life, to be open to the possibilities of what we become can become. And I want to close with this story and then I want to take uh, questions or, or thoughts. Um, a few decades ago, in Israel, they found the oldest Torah that we have today. And where did they find it? They found it in a little valley outside the old city of Jerusalem. It's called Gehenna. You ever been there? Your bus is driven by this valley called Gehenna. Which, how do you translate Gehenna? Hell. That's the best translation we got is hell. Uh, today in Hebrew it's called Ketef Chinom. That valley is called Ketef Chinom, but we still call it Gehenom for short. Why do they call it Gehenom? Because that was where the archaeologists dug up child altars. That's where the Canaanites sacrificed children in the name of God. So that's hell. I mean, could you imagine a society any evil than killing your children in the name of God? So 30 years ago, the archaeologists were there and they dug a little deeper. They dug below the permits, and they found two silver amulets. And inside those two silver amulets is the oldest Torah that we have today. And on those scrolls it says, Yeverecha Adonai Ve'ishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai Panavelecha Ve'kuneka, Yisa Adonai Panavelecha Ve'yasim Lecha Shalom. The Jewish prayer for peace. That when you dig into the depths of hell, if you dig a little deeper, you find a Jewish prayer for peace. If you dig into the depths of darkness in the world and you go a little bit deeper, you find shining light. That all of us can live with the hope and the optimism and the faith 
to have the courage to go to the darkest places in our lives and in the world and dig a little deeper, and there we'll find redemption. Thank you so much. Yes, yes, please. Rabbi. So, first of all, thank you so much for all for what you said today and also for your work in the world. Um, I'm so concerned right now about the infighting that is. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm so concerned about the infighting in our communities. Talked about that the left and the right, but I, what I see is within our Jewish community, within our political climate, we are like eating each other alive. There is so much um, negativity. There, people are very quick, and I can't help but think about every day. I think about Tisha B'Av, that even though. Even though the temple was um, destroyed because of great forces like the Babylonians and the Romans, still the rabbis asked the question, what is our responsibility? And in the second temple, the rabbi said it was baseless hatred. So I see that going on right now, and I would love to know your thoughts about how to heal the wounds within our community. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, we have a few hours? It's <laughs> um, a good question, right? Yeah, the, the, the folks read Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, what's it called, Righteous Mind. Uh, and he talks about there, our inability to cultivate empathy for those who fundamentally see the world differently from us. Um, and our, uh, um, our attribution of evil motives on the other side. When I'm in some ultra-Orthodox circles, they say those Reformed Jews, they hate God and Torah, they want to destroy it. And when I'm in some Reformed circles, I hear those nasty ultra-Orthodox Jews, you see what they're doing, it's so, so gross. The hatred that you feel in these, in these circles is so deep, and yet they know virtually no one in that camp, right? They never, seriously, this ultra-Orthodox folks have never really met Reformed Jew and talk to them about their beliefs. Reformed Jew never really see, you know, been with an ultra-Orthodox community and talked to them. But that fear and that anger is so deep. In fact, some of them build their identity upon the hatred of that other group. I'm not, I'm not Reformed, or I hate the Orthodox, whatever the case is. That that, that hatred actually, actually builds their identity. And we've, and we've, allowed, we've allowed that to um, be fostered. We've allowed, we've allowed the, the heating up of that that it's become so corrosive and destructive today. And in fact, we're very close to the point where we can say there's no longer a Jewish people. We're very close. That in fact, none of our assumptions are the same. The way we view Israel, the way we view God, the way we view mitzvot, the way we view the question of who can convert and how, who is a Jew even, right? We are very close to the point of no return, that there's no such thing as Kal Yisrael, right? And that's a, that, that's a scary moment. And I think that we talk about building bridges outside of the Jewish community, Jewish-black relations, Jewish-Muslim dialogue, Jewish-Latino activism, whatever the case is. Can we do that within our own community? Can we find ways to reach out a hand? And we might say, oh, I'll do it, but they won't do it. We've got to work harder. We've got to work harder to do it. There's, there's a lot at stake in doing that, and I believe everyone grows from it. I believe everyone grows. A lot of my work is, is about trying to do this. And that doesn't mean we have to accept and embrace and agree with the other side. Someone could say, look, I totally agree with gender roles in, in, in orthodoxy. Someone else could say, I totally disagree with you know, the, 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 the doing away with uh, halakha, of, of commandedness of law. But if I disagree, 
let's have real disagreements. In fact, all of Jewish literature is about disagreements. The entire Talmud, what's amazing is the Talmud is not dogma. The Talmud, tractate after tractate, three quarters of, the, of, 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 those, of those Talmudic tractates is machlokets, it's arguments. A quarter is narrative. There's stories that go along with those arguments. But in fact, what Rav Kook taught was Talmidei Chachamim Marbim Shalom Be'olam that sages increase peace in the world. And Rav Kook said, no, they don't. They, don't increase, they cre- increase machloket. They increase arguments. So that's the point. Only through healthy, holy argument can you reach a higher state of peace. So in fact, we need to debate those Politically on the left and the right, those who disagree on Israel, within our Jewish community, these different ideas, we should, we should learn together, we should, we should volunteer together, we should get to know each other. So you're absolutely right, the sinat chinam, the baseless hatred, is very, very high, and um, the community is becoming more and more polarized, and I think that the f- first thing we have to do is remind ourselves that the motives on the other side are not bad. Um, um, and, uh, um, and the second is actually to get to know people um, from that other camp. So there's a lot more to say about that, but that, that's sort of a start. Yes, please. I want to reiterate thanks for yeah. this incredibly inspiring lecture that you thank gave you, us. Thank and, you. Um, my question has to do with, when I hear about, uh, as you spoke of the need to, to take action and, yeah. and to open our eyes and to work to improve and to make changes both without and within our mm-hmm. own selves. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can speak to when and in what context it might be appropriate to also incorporate into our lives time to rest, to step mm-hmm. back, mm-hmm. to disengage, to have fun, to laugh, to mm-hmm. play, mm-hmm. as opposed to always being worried about saving the world and 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 using every moment of our lives mm-hmm. to do good and, and helping this person and that person. Where, mm-hmm. does, where is it appropriate for this other Great, great, great. So, I, so I'm not referring to an anxious style of living where we're constantly on edge and racing as fast as we possibly can. I'm referring to a cultivation of inner being that emanates a type of goodness, that we no longer make a hard decision Am I going to give some money? Am I going to give some time? Am I going to give it myself? But we work on our our inner state that we can bring in a calm fashion to the world. Now, it's true. There's going to be some anxious moments, right? The way one of my friends phrased it was, now, I'm not a surfer. I know we're in California, so you're all surfers, right? No, I'm kidding. I used to live in California. I didn't meet one surfer. But, But he explains that when you're on a surfboard, when there's no wave, you ride the calm. Right? You'd be a fool to be paddling hard when you have a calm water. But then when you have a wave, you paddle like hell. Right? And the wisdom is to know when do you paddle like hell on the wave and when do you just ride the calm waters. And you have a lot of folks who are paddling real hard in calm waters and you have a lot of folks who don't know how to ride the wave at that moment. And the timing is of the essence. So that's the first thing I want to say is this emanation of, of goodness rather than just anxious, anxious choices. The second is riding the wave and how we paddle. And the third bit is the greatest gift that Judaism gives to the world, maybe Shabbat. Shabbat of this ability to fundamentally live differently one day a week in whatever way you embrace Shabbat. Right? In an age where I see we don't have so many millennials in the room, but the way millennials walk down the street now is like this. <laughs> Sometimes I find myself doing it as well, right? But actually, right, that um, we are, the, the greatest addiction in our time is, the, is devices. We can't get off these things, right? But whatever it is, we all have addictions. There's something that we feel the need to do every day, right? And Shabbat says, one day a week, live differently. It may mean turning off your phone or not going on your email, turning off your TV or not you know, going for a certain errand or whatever, but to have a day where we charge ourselves with clarity, charge ourselves with spiritual and intellectual clarity. That's a real gift to give ourselves to do and how much more we can give the other six if we do that well. So I appreciate you raising that. And um, I also think Lastly, that the greatest way to remove some of the anxiety we have is to act. Some of the reasons why some of that guilt and anxiety piles on is because we don't act on it. 
and we're, we're aware that there's a relationship that really needs some acting on. There's a societal or communal issue that really needs us to get involved. And we don't, so it continues to agitate there. And we assume, like that Moshe moment, that someone else is going to jump in and handle this. Or it's just going to get resolved on its own. But it doesn't. Yes, someone else had their hand up, I think. Okay, maybe not. Okay, we have one more here. We'll take one more. Yes. Um, Years ago, when I, very long ago, when I was a young child, I heard about if you're on an airplane, um, you should save your, you know, put your mask on Uh, first for mm -hmm. oxygen, and then if you have children with you, you save them. And I thought that was horrible because wouldn't you want to save your children? And then as I got older, I realized the reason was, how can you save them if you are dying? So you have to save yourself first in order to save your children. And I think today, a lot of people are twisted it a little bit, and they think too much about saving themselves before they save someone else, or children, or whatever. There's a lot of... Well, my opinion is, or I think this, or it's me, instead of like, well, I understand what you're thinking, but I don't agree with it. I have my own. Right, great. So there's a few issues here. One is the loss of an intellectual culture, right, which is that people used to read, right? Now people read headlines, right? The average American reads 0.6 books a year. I don't know what it means to read 0.6 books, you know what I mean? But 0.6 books is the average, right? So actually, people don't want to think. And I can't talk to anybody because I just have my own strong views. And, and nobody has the similar views to me because it's not really nuanced or educated. So I, I can't actually talk. But the other bit is, um, is, uh, the, is a, a, a growing sense of a, of a, of a narcissism, in a sense. Um, which is very true, in, in fact, and of greed. In fact, it used to be that the war in Judaism was against Christianity. We're going to lose all the Jews to Christianity, so we have to fight a war to keep Jews Jewish. How amazing it would be today if we were losing Jews to theological commitment. What do we lose Jews to today? Real estate, by which I mean people want more stuff. I don't want time for Judaism. I want to go buy more stuff, get more stuff. I just want to consume. I want to just go shopping all the time. I want to just acquire more wealth. Right? There is this, there is this um, obsession with, um, with stuff, right? And so that's, that's the threat, that we actually live in our own narrow space um, and wish to perpetuate our own pleasure at, at every moment. Um, however, Judaism, I think, really goes on the lines of put on your mask first. Ultimately, I think that love another as yourself implies you have to love yourself. Only to the degree that we love ourselves can we love another. Only to the degree that we've sustained ourselves can we sustain others. Right? Only to the degree that we've cultivated our inner light and our own rest and our own gratitude can that truly pour out. One of the main reasons why people aren't more giving and don't actualize their potential is because they haven't invested in their own inner light. In their, own, in their own inner goodness. And so they can't even see it in others as well. So I give us all the bracha that we should be sealed in the book of life. We should actualize these high holidays this year to actualize our potential as individuals, as, as families, as communities, as Americans, and as, you know, as, uh, as, as, as humanity and all of creation. And that we can truly engage in teshuvah of repairing ourselves and changing ourselves to actualize the dreams that we wish to live. Thank you all so much. Thank you.